From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Then we get into a question of, okay, based on life experience, based on the thoughts that have surfaced to everybody, what, if anything, are you wondering? You know, what kind of questions come to mind? On today's show, we talk with Laura Shepard and Kaylee Dance about pairing food with art for socially distanced cultural events. We visit a teaching kitchen featuring Japanese food and talk with chef and owner Maury Wilhite. And Josephine McRobbie talks with a sweet shop owner about spring baking ideas. All that and more just ahead, so stay with us. Earth Eats is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Renee Reed is back with Earth Eats News. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. The USDA is expanding its pandemic school lunch program to pay for meals over the summer. In the past, schools, libraries, and other sites provided meals. This year, families who rely on reduced or free lunch will receive about $375 per month for meals when classes aren't in session. Aubrey Mancuso, serves as executive director of the Nebraska Voices for Children nonprofit. She says direct payments have been shown to be effective in fighting hunger. I think it's just a different experience for families, and it's just a lot more empowering to be able to, to purchase the foods that you and your family want and need. Research by the Brookings Institute last July found the pandemic EBT program reduced child hunger by 30% in the week after distribution. The temporary program is funded through the summer of 2022 under the American Rescue Plan passed by Congress in March. Temperatures dipped to below freezing across the Midwest last week, and farmers are tallying up their losses from the cold snap. Emma Johnson co-farms Buffalo Ridge Orchard in eastern Iowa. She says she expects a 30 to 50 percent loss in her apple crop, but is planting vegetables to offset those losses. We think there's going to be a little less income in the orchard. We can maybe offset that with um, some storage crops such as like potatoes and beets, carrots. She adds the damage throughout the orchard isn't as much as they expected. Her husband drove a heater through the orchard to keep the ground warm and control the humidity to prevent a massive crop loss. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Christina Stella and Katie Pikus for those reports. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed.
baking in the fall lends itself to all kinds of ubiquitous flavors. From maple to ginger to, you guessed it, pumpkin spice. But as the weather warms, adding a seasonal touch to treats can take some imagination. Producer Josephine McRobbie visits with one baker who has this down to a science. Anisette Sweet Shop is nestled in a quiet residential neighborhood near downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. With its distinctive ivory and creamsicle color scheme, the store fits right in among streets lined with daffodils and crepe myrtle trees. Lots of nice peachy colors with an occasional, like, strong square element to make it not seem like, you know, a little girl's tea party or whatever. (laughs) My fellow Bloomington expats, Nicole and Jason Evans Growth, have owned the sweet shop and coffee market for almost five years. When COVID-19 affected their ability to have customers in the store, they had to figure out how to bring Anisette's ambiance outside. So people used to enter, and we had these beautiful marble top tables with the glass case on it. And one of the saddest things was trying to figure out, so that's where you would see the food when you first walked in. And so trying to figure out how we can still display everything and have people, you know, when you see food, you're more likely to want it. So the front of the building has this nice big picture window where we put shelving. We bought what we call the robot, which is kind of like an old-fashioned spinny pie uh, refrigerator. (laughs) So that's been a nice addition in COVID times. Children love the robot. Adults, everybody loves the robot. And now the dessert spinning slowly in the window can advertise not just what's for sale, but what's in season. In the cold months, there's vanilla pumpkin cake, cranberry scones, and bourbon cream pie. In the summer? Never-ending peaches. You know, there'll be blueberries for at least a couple months. So just like bright and bold and lots of color. And here in central North Carolina, there's a long springtime season. Like small bundt cakes that will then get that cream on top. I'm here while Nicole and her staff prep the week's items to talk to her about the flavors and ingredients she thinks about when the weather starts warming up. In preparing for this, I was sort of flipping through our Instagram to see what's been happening recently. I noticed a lot of things that have fluffy white stuff on top, so maybe I'm thinking of bunnies. I don't know. When I stop by in April, it's a little cold for some produce, but there are still apple varieties everywhere. Cameo is really nice, and especially for, I think, this time of year, they have such a floral flavor. This weekend we'll have apple and gruyere cobblers, apples with a little bit of nutty cheese, and it's chilly outside, but there are nice breezes, so it's all these sort of soft, gentle flavors. Tunnel-grown winter strawberries are one of Nicole's favorite transitional spring ingredients. They're grown in the colder months under like a little canopy of some sort. And those berries in particular get so, so sweet. They can be used to top a variety of cakes and buns with a technicolor glaze. Every once in a while, we'll have somebody who who questions if they see an item that has like a really pink glaze on it. We have to convince them that it is not food coloring. (laughs) But the fruit will just give you those colors. There's no reason to not just take some strawberries, raspberries, whatever, blend it up mix it with some powdered sugar and see what happens. (laughs) 
Southern Ground is a new cookbook by Carolina Ground, the mill that supplies Anisette's sweet shop with flour. The tour of Southern Craft Bakeries features Nicole's recipe for mascarpone cake, a staple she adapts for whatever fruit is in season. So the basis of mascarpone cake, which really just means that most of the fat in the cake is from mascarpone cheese rather than butter. And so it's this really nice dense and kind of silky texture. And then this one has dried chamomile in it and little studs of fresh strawberries. The chamomile is a nod to a time when gardens are starting to fill with fresh herbs. And I think that that's something that, that people maybe shy away from in, with baked goods. Nice herbaceous aromatic flavors like last week we had a rosemary cream pie. So using rosemary and well and lavender of course. And these are all things that of course you're using dried so don't necessarily have to worry about getting them fresh right now when you might when it might be harder to find. We had a customer who brought us a bunch of bay leaves from her backyard recently and so that is one ingredient. I happen to love the flavor of bay leaves but it's one ingredient that we can then use to inspire you know all sorts of all sorts of things. If you put it in the pan and then put cake batter on top of it and bake your cake you will get that flavor throughout the cake. I came up with this ricotta cheesecake recipe where we're putting the bay leaves on top, mostly because I wanted to be able to see them because they're so pretty. And so in that case, so essentially you peel them off before you eat the cheesecake, but those bites where the bay leaves were, you're getting that flavor like pretty intensely. And then the rest of it is just like this nice clean cheesecake flavor. One really nice ingredient can inspire a lot of, a lot of dishes. Every month, Jason makes a three-hour drive across the state to the Carolina Ground Mill to pick up bags of bread, rye, and pastry flour. Nicole thinks of these ingredients as being as fresh and changeable as fruits. It's all whole grain, so there are no parts of the wheat removed, so you're getting all of the beautiful nutrients and the fat and flavor, and every time we get a new batch, there's always a chance that it's going to act a little differently. For some people, you might think that, you know, what a nightmare because you have to like rework your recipes or whatever, but it's food. It's essentially produce. There's a lot of having to react to the flour, which I totally appreciate because, you know, we want to treat it like food and get the most out of it in terms of flavor and texture and whatnot. Anisette's sweet shop is small enough that the two owners can buy ingredients on a whim from the co-op or the farmer's market rather than buying everything wholesale. And this means that Nicole is often tweaking her baking recipes. I think of it as cooking. You need to adjust to the ingredients. Sometimes there are items that maybe midway through you have to change the temperature on the oven. Like think of it as like a cooktop. This is where it comes back to us being very small scale, small batch. Because anybody who's operating, you know, a large wholesale bakery, those things are really impractical. But this is essentially like a small bakery cafe. And so we can work in small batches and actually adjust to the food. And in the spring, there are plenty of ingredients to play around with, not just for the taste, but also for the mood boost that many of us need right now. So like it's a good time for items that sort of evoke happiness and you know we've just come out of a very long winter <laughs> so really nice comforting soft foods that story comes to us from producer josephine mcrobbie find more on our website eartheats.org
I think for me, what I didn't expect was actually how many different perspectives there were and how differently people look at art. The pandemic has changed the way many of us experience education, dining, socializing, and culture more broadly, including the visual arts. Here at Indiana University, in the Sydney and Lois Eskenazi Museum of Art, Laura Shepper had to find new ways to engage the public with the museum's collection. I'm Laura Shepper. My pronouns are she and her. I serve as the public experiences manager at the Eskenazi Museum of Art, located on the Indiana University Bloomington campus. Her role is to design experiences that facilitate connection between the artworks and the people visiting the museum. Without visitors in the physical space of the museum, Laura faced a challenging situation. She found inspiration in an informal Zoom call between her family and another family, friends of hers, where they cooked together for a socially distanced culinary experience. It was so much fun that she thought it might make for an engaging experience with the museum. She enlisted the support of a local foodie and social media influencer, Kaylee Dance. Hi, my name is Kaylee Dance. I am a social media specialist at Indiana University, and I'm also a food influencer in the Bloomington community. Together, they crafted a series of art and food pairings for monthly Zoom sessions throughout the semester. For each session, they invited someone from the food world to identify an object from the museum's collection, something they felt drawn to from a number of options that Laura shared with them digitally. Next, they would think of a food pairing for the object and would join the food and art pairing Zoom session for a discussion. Participants could see the artwork ahead of time and consider their own food pairings and possibly even prepare them to enjoy during the session. Laura's expertise is in guiding people towards engaging with art. The way it works is that uh, we start with what we call a visual menu, and that menu is an artwork. Typically, in most episodes, we'll look at a single artwork together, and then I facilitate a conversation. So with that, we're asking people to look closely at the artwork, and we start by asking, what do you see? And we ask people to describe with as much vivid detail as they can what we're looking at together. So at that, page, at that point, we're not talking about memories or other things. We're just strictly talking, noticing the details of what we can see. And it's with any of these conversations, the more people who are contributing, the more perspectives, we each notice different things. Kaylee's eye might be drawn to something different than my eye is drawn to. And the more people who are contributing, we're going to pick out different details. And that's going to lead us to a richer conversation and more ideas in terms of food pairing. After we talk about what we see, the next question that I typically ask is based on your own life experience, based on what we're seeing, what you can see in this image here, what kind of thoughts come to mind? You know, what are you thinking? Once we talk about some of the thoughts and what we're thinking when we're looking at the image, then we get into a question of, okay, based on life experience, based on the thoughts that have surfaced for everybody, what, if anything, are you wondering? You know, what kind of questions come to mind? 
And for there, then that's a natural lead into what kinds of food or beverage might pair with this particular artwork based on, you know, all these ideas that emerged and people's curiosities. And, you know, you start wondering one thing leads to another. There's usually by then a vibe or a sense of feelings or different things that might be thoughts and so forth. And then we'll listen to ideas from the community, from participants who are at the table. And then we'll take turns, um, Kaylee and myself and a featured guest, revealing specifically what did each of us choose to pair with this particular artwork. One of the things that appealed to me about the series is that there are no wrong answers when it comes to pairing food with art. I hope that everybody knows there's no right answers. I'm not sure if that's true. <laughs> I, honestly, um, I really hope that, and I, I try hard to communicate that. It would be easy to think, oh, I don't know, like I'm not a chef. I don't know how to fancily do a food for an artwork, or you know, or maybe you have to replicate the artwork in, you know, painted, or you know, I, I can imagine all kinds of. You know, I hope that people realize that there's no wrong answer, and the beauty of it is just expressing and finding a way to connect with it in, in your own life. And when I reached out recently to a curator, she said, oh, the, yes, but it's okay to use it, but there's no connection to food. And I was like, oh, that doesn't have to be. You know, we're gonna add the connection to food. Mm-hmm. I think for me, what I didn't expect was actually how many different perspectives there were and how differently people look at art. The individuality aspect of it is so cool because people do have different life experiences. Even if there are common denominators between two people, no two people are the exact same. So for me, when I'm sitting here listening to other people share their stories, share their experiences, and share their thoughts on these pieces, it's really cool because in a way, I'm getting to know you know this single person. And for me, it's been really important to amplify my connection with other people. Because again, we are in a pandemic. I can't go see everybody all the time. And one thing that I truly miss is going out and getting dinner or brunch with my friends. So by doing this series, that's essentially what I'm doing. Everybody who logs on, whether it's 20 people or 40 people, they're all my friends at that point. We're getting to know each other. We're connecting over Zoom. And it's, again, just a reminder that basic human connection is just something that's so important. And I really feel like today we're taking advantage of all that we can in order to keep that connection. I think it's connected on a level beyond what I expected in terms of like the feedback and the messages that I get that people are just really appreciating right now the opportunity to do that. Food can serve as a familiar entry point for people who may not be used to talking about art. A lot of people don't have experience with art, and I was actually one of those people before Laura approached me. Of course, you know, I've been to museums and I've seen art before, but I just kind of had a blind eye to it. I would see these art pieces and I would be like, wow, that's really pretty. But what am I supposed to be feeling? What am I supposed to be doing? What am I supposed to be thinking? And I had no idea that it was more of this personal connection. It's more of, well, what do you see? What do you think? That kind of opened up my eyes to the art world. Now I walk into museums and I'm like, oh, let's stop. I really want to stare at the details of this. And I always start asking questions with my friends now. I'm like, what do you think like the artist was thinking when they painted this color instead of something else? And it's so cool because it's just like I have this new lens now. And again, Again, it is thanks to you, so I'm very thankful that you were introduced to me. <laughs> food is universal. We all have experiences with food. It can feel like a safe entry point or something familiar. It may be an easy way to start talking about it. I think a great example would be one of the earlier artworks we looked at with executive chef David Talent. It's a painting of a, a forest stream. And as he talked about that and described what he saw, he had memories of walking across campus in the fall 
and for me, I was thinking picnics and other things, but for him, thinking through the fall and the crunchiness of the leaves, and he talked about, for him, there was this seasonality to butternut squash, and the local farmers asking him, you know, David, are you ready to start cooking with it? And they've got the squash, and it's coming out earlier than he's ready, you know, for, for you know, he's not ready for the winter, and that, that change, and he said, you know, not until the leaves are down, I think it is, that would he start to buy these and use those. So he's bringing, you know, a really interesting personal connection just by looking at that image and starting to describe the leaves on the ground and what he's seeing and the, the, the trees and the change of seasons. I asked if they could think of any examples of what a guest chef chose as their pairing. Our featured guest was Candace Boyd Wiley of Food Love Talk. She's based in Indianapolis. The artwork she selected was titled A Study for Support. There's actually a mural in Cleveland that this artist had made. So the painting that we have is a watercolor painting that where the artist was preparing to make the mural. It is by the artist Darius Stewart. It is a watercolor on a white piece of paper. Most of the painting is in the left half of the image. It's vertically oriented. You can see a woman with slightly darker skin and dark hair, and she is looking downward and gazing downward at a young boy of dark skin. He's got very short hair. He's only visible, I would say, from the neck up. up. Yeah. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. They um, are reaching toward each other their eyes are connected lovely work so I think when we started to look at it together and describe people were starting to see that connection um, between the adult female and the child and we're thinking about the feelings of connection and safety and belonging and uplifting we wondered uh, Mm -hmm. what was on their minds what, what, what conversation was happening what was she saying to him and then uh, Candace paired it with several foods, actually more than, more than one. It was a beautiful pairing um, that evoked those those feelings of connection. I think she had her bra- braised collard greens. I mm-hmm. should have looked at my notes before going in. She had um, cornbread, too. She had cornbread, mm-hmm. yes. And she had a, a cabbage with Johnny Cakes. It was fantastic. So there are several recipes I want to go back and, and look at again. I asked Kaylee what she had paired with the artwork. I ended up pairing it with this southern style country potato chowder, which is something that my mom used to make for me every time I was sick. And it just reminded me like the mix between the art and the cold weather outside. I wanted to go home so bad. So I made this uh, chowder kind of just in her name, essentially. And for each episode, I do take photos of all the food that I had. So the image that I had posted was the bowl of soup with a little Polaroid of me and my mom when I was younger, almost kind of a little younger than the um, boy in the art piece. But um, I also had a little handwritten note of the most recent card that she had sent me. So it was very sentimental. But yes, I did have a pairing. Sometimes the featured guests prepared their food pairing during the session. Maury Wilhite of Katsumi's Teaching Kitchen had selected an ornate ceramic piece of stacked circular boxes as her art object. Then she taught a cooking lesson. She had made um, a bento box. She taught us how to make sushi, actually, on the episode. Such a cool experience. Um, I wrote down her rice recipe almost immediately. I am so excited and so determined to make my own sushi roll one day. We'll be talking with Maury Wilhite later in the episode. Even though meeting as a group for an art and food pairing workshop may still remain out of reach, the museum is now open to visitors, and you might have a chance to see some of the artwork in person. 
I do visit the art museum to see the artworks in real life, and I get surprised every time. So one of the artworks that we had seen, it was so much smaller than what I had expected. It was really like this big. The base was yeah, nothing. Yeah. Yes, yes. And it's so tiny, but when I was looking at it, I imagined it to be this giant thing. <laughs> and so when I went to the museum, it was like a little scavenger hunt. I got to see some really cool art along the way while I was trying to find this art piece. That's a great point. I think seeing that in person, I felt the same way as you. It was smaller than I expected on that particular, um, it's a Japanese face. I remember so you paired it with mochi, and mm-hmm. I thought that was brilliant. Like, not only the colors in it and, like, and like you know, the flavors inside, but mm-hmm. also even just that the roundness size. and the size. Like, <laughs> that <Yeah>. brilliant. <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't realize right. it was that small. So when I saw it afterwards, I was like, oh, I, I pretty, I hit that on the head. Like, I was like, oh, you did it. <laughs> yes. And yes. Then that one, I we think it may have been, it could, it could be used for um, as a vase in a Japanese tea ceremony. So I went over to Cup and Kettle mm-hmm. and got a tea to go with it. I believe uh-huh. it was uh, an orange blossom tea based on some of the coloring in it. And then Eric Shedler from Muddy Fork Bakery paired it with a croissant with all the, this particular technique was um, where the clay is, is la- different types of clay are layered together uh-huh. in a very um, intricate way. And so it was, he likened it to the way a croissant is layered with the layers of dough. There's a lot of similarities wow. there. And I thought, again, just three interesting directions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So he's getting into like the structure of how something's made. Mm-hmm. Right. And Dave Talent was getting into what are the associations of the season. And <laughs> that's really, that is really interesting. And Maury was talking about how she might use this or how someone in her family might use this object. So mm-hmm. that is a lot of, that is a lot of really interesting connections. Maybe you can't visit the drawing in person, but maybe you could go looking for that mural. Sure. You know, mm-hmm, maybe yeah. that's something you'll get to experience in person and you would know to look for it and you might get to actually see sure. it. Sure. And then you might have other con- new connections to it. Be- having been in that conversation together with yeah. everybody in the memories, it might mean something different than if you had not had that conversation and walked yeah. by on the street. Well, thank you both so much, guys. I had, had okay. you here for a little longer than expected. So, okay, that's <laughs> oh, no, thanks. Thank yeah. you. Do thank you for asking an, an opportunity to have this conversation today. Today, our guests were Laura Shepper and Kaylee Dance with the Sidney and Lois Eskenazi Museum of Art at Indiana University. Find more about their work at eartheats.org. I'm Kate Young, and you're listening to Earth Eats. Stay tuned for a conversation and recipe with Maury Wilhite of Katsumi's Teaching Kitchen.
Kate Young here. You're listening to Earth Eats. One of the featured guests for the Eskenazi Museum's food and art pairings was Maury Wilhite. My name is Maury Wilhite. I am the owner-operator of Katsumi's Teaching Kitchen. Maury has been running the Teaching Kitchen for about six years, but recently moved her business into a storefront on Main Street in downtown Beach Grove on the outskirts of Indianapolis. Maury describes herself as a snob when it comes to Japanese food. She says she gets that from her mother. Not only my mom, my mom's a snob because my grandparents were. One of the earliest, earliest memories I have of cooking is when I was like five or six in Japan and I was helping my Japanese grandmother cook. And so whenever I get sad, lonely, depressed, as I got older, I always start cooking Japanese food and it just makes me feel happier. Do you remember what she was making? She was busy making uh, whatever dinner it was, but she would have me wear the oversized Japanese apron and cut up something very badly and then made sure everyone knew, oh, Mori helped today, she cut the green onions, you know, stuff like that. So it's just food for, I think, not only me, but everybody, you know, if you have good memories with your family, through cooking, you know, all that stuff in the kitchen. That's what it represents most to me. So I was born in 63, and we were in Japan for a little bit in the late 60s, and back then sushi was only eaten for special occasions, not as frequently as it does now. So for me, sushi is like, oh, you know, something could happen, you know. But now it's everywhere. And then plus my dad, he's American Samoan, so he's a Polynesian too. So I've been eating... Japanese-style food and raw fish since, you know, I can remember. When we moved back to the States, Dad was in the Marine Corps, and Mom, we were in San Diego. You couldn't take the Japanese out of the girl, so Mom started cooking real Japanese food, and her parents, my grandparents, were sending in monthly Japanese rice and soy sauce and seaweed because there's nothing adequate uh, in San Diego, so we ate like that. I learned quickly that just because it's this Japanese restaurant, it doesn't mean you're going to get what you got at home. And so that's why our, my sister and I, we didn't formally study cooking, of course, but our taste buds were very refined. And as we grow up, as you grow up, you know, and eventually you have to leave home, that's when I started really learning how to make Japanese food because unless I learned how to make rice, I couldn't wait till Thanksgiving or Christmas when I came back. I mean... It's just no way I was going to give it up. When I went to college, of course, I made friends with Japanese students, and we did cookouts there, and I would pick up something here and there. What's even funnier is I was in the Army, and as soon as I settled somewhere, I had my mom send for my rice cooker. She sent it to me. <laughs> I, had a, I had my rice cooker with me in the barracks, and, you know, I make Japanese food because I can't live without it. And, you know, you get bored, so you start expanding your menu, and... She describes herself as more of a teacher than a chef. She has a background as a Japanese language instructor, but she's found that sharing food is a fun way to connect with others around Japanese culture. You know, everyone's happy around food. Everyone's even happy around good food. And running her own cooking school allowed her the flexibility she needed when she was caring for her elderly mother and her child with special needs. She started with what she knew from her family 
and then dove into researching Japanese cuisine to fill in the gaps. Because people, you know, people when they ask you questions, you better know the answer type thing. So, yeah, a lot of it, thank God my mom was the food snob because a lot of the stuff, especially here in the U.S., especially here in Indiana, she would tell me how she would get some of her things. So one time we were having uh, sushi at my mom's house, and then, you know, that tin container I have to put the right, the seaweed in? So I picked up my mom's, and I opened it, and the seaweed looked molded to me. And my mom's old, so I thought, oh my gosh, she's keeping the molded stuff. I go, Mom, you should throw this out. It's probably bad. And she goes, no, you don't understand. And finally, she confessed uh, back to traditional Chinese medicine. When you ingest gold, it's good for your joints. So my mom, I knew she had gold-dusted green tea and gold-dusted salt. My mom had gold-dusted seaweed. What the? Mom, what is this? Well, she didn't want to share because it's gold. You know, God forbid she shared it with her firstborn or something. She shared it with her grandson. She went share. I go, Mom, I don't have to eat this, but, you know, okay, thanks for telling me. Like, it's just totally, it's hilarious in retrospect, but she was hiding her gold stuff. Most people invested, but my mom's eating this stuff, so I was like, whatever. Her mom's insistence on high-end Japanese ingredients did come in handy when Mori started her teaching kitchen. She knew where to get all the supplies. In her classes, Mori takes the time to talk about specific ingredients and where to find them locally. And she goes over the different grades of rice and why it's worth paying a bit more for the good stuff without going overboard, as her mom sometimes did. Mori tells the story of her mom once paying $75 for a bag of the new crop of her favorite rice. You couldn't wait a week, mother, you know, that sort of thing, because she just misses home, I understand, and I go, next time you buy something like that, don't tell me. I don't want to know. Mori's food and art pairing with the Eskenazi Museum of Art took place on a Saturday afternoon in January. The artwork she chose was a round, stacked porcelain lunchbox, lavishly decorated with intricate patterns in shades of orange and red and blue. Laura Shepper and Kaylee Dance led the discussion of the artwork and guided participants to spend time looking at photos of the piece and to share thoughts about associations they made. Maury talked about her first impressions of the piece. What I like about this uh, five-tier bento, it makes you anxious what the food's going to be. I mean, if the outside, if the container is going to be this pretty, what is the food going to be like? Other participants talked about what the piece brought up for them, questions they had, and they speculated on whether the piece was decorative or something that was actually used for food. Laura shared information about the history of the piece where it came from, and the type of porcelain that was used. Maury talked about the symbolism of the turtle and the crane figures she noticed on the top of the domed lid of the box, and she wondered if it might have been intended as a wedding gift. Symbolically in Japan, when you go to a Japanese wedding, a traditional, they have the crane as a um, present because the cranes are monogamous. They, they mate with the same partner for life. And also, there's a turtle on the bottom, uh, turtles represent 10,000 years of continuation or longevity. So that's why I brought up the wedding, and hopefully, you know, you have a very stable, monogamous relationship 10,000 years or forever. So that's why I brought that up. Then Laura shared some background information on bento. A bento itself is a takeout or a home-packed meal of Japanese origin, though it's also in use in other countries as well. So a bento box is a box or a container for that meal. 
They can range from a mass-produced disposable container just to, to lacquerware. So in this case, we're looking at porcelain. When Haley asked the wise question about when might we actually use this, and I think you know, maybe for a very elegant occasion. Just a bit more on bento uh, for context. In Japan, bento um, are readily available as takeout in a lot of different places, like a convenience store, a bento shop, a train station, or a store. But it's not just for cat meals. Um, Japanese makers and others with the time and energy to carefully uh, prepare lunch boxes for their spouse or their kids or even themselves. The discussion moved to what foods people had paired with the art object. Laura talked about a sesame ginger tofu dish. Kaylee mentioned some Japanese sodas she found at B-Town International Market. And Maury said that she had chosen sushi. The sushi is colorful. The vibrant colors would set off the vibrancy of the food as well. After the food pairing discussion, Maury led the participants through instructions for making a California roll. She talked about the importance of rice in sushi making. Mori makes a point in her sushi instruction of breaking down the origins of the word sushi. And that's where the word sushi comes from. Su is vinegar and meshi is rice. So it's supposed to be about the vinegared rice. This was a revelation to me. I always thought that sushi was all about the raw fish. But it made sense to me. I've enjoyed plenty of sushi rolls with no seafood at all, with avocado, cucumber, or even asparagus in the center of that cylinder of sticky white rice cloaked in a sheet of shiny nori. My enjoyment of sushi has so often been about the elegant marriage of all of the flavors and textures, dipping each piece in soy sauce, topping it with a dab of wasabi and a sliver of pickled ginger, I always feel so awake and alive after eating sushi. And the few times I have not enjoyed sushi, I will say, it was the rice that ruined it. If you've ever been fooled into thinking a tray of supermarket sushi might be a good idea, you know how disappointing it is to bite into that cold and crumbly rice. So it makes sense to me that Mori starts her instruction with rice. It's at the heart of making good sushi. Mori recommends that her students take photos of the rice bags and other ingredient packaging in her class as a reference for when they go to the international market. They'll know what they're looking for. Grades, all of this, the premium short grade, super premium, it's all about the rice for sushi. The high quality rice will make a difference as far as, um, there is actually taste at this level. When you chew the rice, the more you chew, there's a sweetness to it. But more important, aside from the taste, is that uh, stickiness. You want your sushi rice to be just sticky enough so when you mold it, it will hold its shape. Maury walked the participants through an abbreviated set of instructions and demonstrated the assembly of the California roll. Then she placed her cut sushi circles within the context of a bento box meal that she had put together before the session. It was a lovely display of edible art. When I had the chance, weeks after the food and art pairing event, to taste sushi that Mori had made, after hearing about her careful selection and preparation of the rice, 
I was convinced. Good rice makes all the difference. Visiting with Maury in her Beech Grove teaching kitchen, I was struck by her generosity. She readily reveals all of her secrets to making the perfect sushi rice or how to build umami flavors for a simple miso soup. Get that umami flavor out, and then I'll strain it in a second. After building a broth base called dashi by slow simmering water, dried shiitake mushrooms, dried anchovies, and kombu, which is a type of seaweed, Mori is now adding the bonito flakes. They're made from dried smoked fish that's been shaved into very thin flakes. Straining it all out because you just want the good juices and everything. So the bonito flakes weren't in there very long. Uh uh-uh. They're very thin, so. You see that uh, apple juice coloring? That's the dashi. This is the miso paste I use. You want to make sure you do, that the um, uh, miso paste is well dissolves properly. In the ladle, I put some miso paste, and I'm using my chopstick to break it up, dissolve it better. You don't miss any. Chunks. So you added some of the broth to it. It'll help it to um, dissolve quicker and better. I'm just adding, as I add some, some of the miso paste already goes into, I'm just, will just make it more. The thing with the miso paste, since they have some microorganisms in there, live ones, to help with your lower gut, you don't want to have the water too hot because it'll kill them. I had to turn it down some more. So you always add that at the end, right before you serve it? Yes. I'm, uh, this is the easy part. The broth is what takes the most time if you're doing it from scratch. Here's some tofus I cut up. The um, green onions, I usually wait to about when I serve it because, you know, they wilt so quickly and stuff. So in our family, we put a, a little bit of sake in there to enhance the flavor. So dry is better. I'm just going to eyeball it just a little, like a teaspoon or so. Right before, towards the end. Cold days like this, miso soup is best. While I was there, Mori also demonstrated how to make spring rolls, California sushi rolls, as she had done in the art pairing session. And she even showed me how she bakes a cake in her rice cooker. I can't believe we flipped that out of the rice cooker, but it's one of those hacks that just turns out. I try to promote, you know, a lot of American goes, I don't want to just get one appliance to do one thing. Oh no, you can make cake, you can make uh, mac and cheese. I try to introduce other stuff, so oh, it has a good anti-mori. Most of my friends, their children go to college, so I buy them a proper rice cooker and I give them a bag of rice. If that's not love, I don't know what is. So they spend the time with me, make their rice, make all these Japanese dishes. So they'll call me and tell me you're hungry. You know, I sent you to college with a bag of rice. And you know how to make stuff, so.
COVID-19 pandemic hitting the U.S. just as Katsumi's teaching kitchen had moved to its new location, Mori had to make some adjustments. She started teaching classes over Zoom and even built her own DIY overhead camera mount out of PVC pipe. And all the classes have been easy. Once you buy, you get a, a, the recipe and the shopping list. Okay. And I tell you, call me if you can't find it. Okay. You know, we'll try to get something equal. I tried out one of the Zoom classes with a few friends. We made a Japanese version of pork and cabbage pot stickers. It was fun to connect and to make food together from the comfort of our own kitchens. And even though she wasn't in the room with us, Mori made sure we understood each step, including the tricky steaming and frying technique at the end. The pot stickers were fantastic. You can see photos, find the miso soup recipe, and learn more about Katsumi's Teaching Kitchen at eartheats.org. morel hunting season in much of the Midwest, and as Melissa Rosales reports for Harvest Public Media, people are scouring river bottoms to find the hollow, sponge-like, edible mushrooms. Omaha public school teacher Christy Jones grew up hunting morel mushrooms with her father, Phil Finch. Right when the lilacs bloom, she was used to getting a phone call from her dad to talk about the season. But this year was different. Her dad was sick with COVID-19, when he died from a heart attack. He passed February 24th, so the last time we actually got to mushroom hunt together was last spring. Wendy Porter steps over a log and ruffles up leaves on the ground with a stick. Oh, that one! Porter and her father are hunting morel mushrooms near the Missouri River. The 51-year-old Nebraskan has been hunting them for 30 years. She's seen some Facebook groups for morel mushroom hunting in Missouri, but not one for Nebraska. So she started her own. And to my surprise, people were wanting to join left and right. And I mean, daily, I get probably 20, 25 people wanting to join. It's pretty cool. The group now has more than 2,500 members. But the last two springs haven't been good seasons because of flooding. Morel hunting is absolutely terrible because the land just gets wiped from the flooding we had a couple of years ago. And so it's not good hunting the year after a flood. Tersh Kepler is a morel mushroom hunting expert. But right now we're in a a perfect time two years after the flood. So I, I predict this is going to be a really good year. Kepler calls it an adult treasure hunt. And like any good treasure hunt, there's a lot of secrecy. The one thing a morel hunter will never do is tell people exactly where they're going. They're worried about people finding their secret spot and getting their mushrooms. Morels are really hard to find because they need very specific conditions to grow. The ground temperatures need to be between 55 and 60 degrees, and they only grow near freshly dead trees that still have a lot of bark on them. What makes them so popular is the fact that no one is 
been able to figure out how to commercially grow them yet. So they're usually in season, depending on where you live, for about six weeks out of the year. Kepler says morel mushroom hunting is extremely popular. Hunters can sell the mushrooms for as much as $40 a pound, maybe even more when the season ends. Greg Wagner with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission says hundreds of people hunt morels in their state parks, but they're not supposed to sell them. The appeal for people to go out and hunt morel mushrooms is the fantastic taste of them. There's nothing that tastes as earthy and peanutty as these morel mushrooms. Wagner enjoys them fried in butter and garlic. Christy Jones likes them fried, too. A few weeks ago, she went hunting with her sons and nephew for the first time without her father. They had been hunting for nearly an hour and almost gave up. And I don't know, I just kind of stopped and looked down and I saw one and I just looked at Matthew, my son, and I looked down and I said, thanks, Dad. And then there were about nine more right around that one. And I just really felt Dad there going, here you go, find the cluster. Joan says it's bittersweet to hunt without her dad, but she'll never give it up. And I know my boys are planning to pass it down when they have kids. It'll just be a tradition that continues in our family. And I'm sure they'll tell stories to their kids about their grandpa. Jones encourages hunters to enjoy the time in nature and the peace and quiet, whether or not they find anything. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Melissa Rosales. Harvest Public Media covers food and farming in the heartland. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Laura Shepper, Kaylee Dance, Maury Wilhite, and Nicole Evans-Groth. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.